After the fall of the dinosaurs, mammals were able to diversify and expand. But mammals didn't just appear. They had been playing the long con. They had been around from between about 230 to 205 million years ago, depending on what you decide is the first mammal. But how did our ancestors come to be? How did they become mammals? Well, according to today's theory, it wouldn't have happened without some major downsizing. We had to descend from giants. Welcome to episode 3C of Podcast Wild. I'm your host, MK, and today's topic is Descended from Giants, where we finally answer the when, how, and why of mammal evolution with the size refugium hypothesis, derived from Dr. Brian K. McNabb's research. Before we start, let's go over what we covered in the beginning of this three-parter. In 3a, some like it hot, we covered the difference between endo and ectothermy, how endotherms have higher metabolic or energy costs, but they can be more active than ectotherms. We also discussed that the difference isn't so cut and dry. Importantly, you can have ectotherms with stable temperatures, also called homeotherms. In episode 3b, Making of a Mammal, we discussed the suite of characteristics used to identify mammals, specifically the 14 traits that aid in endothermy. To start at the beginning, we need to go back to the middle of the Carboniferous period, around 320 million years ago. During this period, the supercontinent Gondwanaland was giving way to Pangaea. Oxygen was at its highest atmospheric levels, the climate was tropical, with the early ancestors of conifers starting to appear, and all this leads to the source of the coal we use today. This is also the time of the last common ancestor between mammals and reptiles. Now the group that split weren't mammals yet. They were the synapsids. This refers to an opening in the skull found behind and a little bit below the eyes used for muscle attachment. This is in contrast to no holes, or anapsids, seen in turtles, and diapsids, with two holes, seen in birds, dinosaurs, and most other reptiles. During the end of the Carboniferous, until the end of the Permian, synapsids were the dominant life forms on the planet. Early synapsids are often referred to as pelicosaurs, and include animals like Dimetrodon. Dimetrodon is, of course, that lizard-looking creature on four legs with a big sail across its back. Yep, those guys aren't dinosaurs. They're not even lizards. 
As the Carboniferous gave way to the Permian, the climate started to dry out. As the lush forests cleared, animals were able to get big. For example, Diametrodon got up to about 13 meters, or 10 feet. By the middle of the Permian, about 265 million years ago, another branch of the synapsid tree took over, the therapsids, the line that would one day lead to us. These guys could get even bigger at up to 5 meters or 16 feet. And it's that size that is the key to our evolution. To understand this, we have to look at a modern-day reptilian homeotherm, the leatherback sea turtle. These guys are pretty big, roughly 2 meters or 7 feet long, and about 907 kilograms or 2,000 pounds. They're so big, in fact, that they have their own thermal inertia. Just like normal inertia, once something big gets going, it's harder to stop it. So, once it heats up, it's hard to get it cooled back down. A large part of this is due to the surface area to volume ratio. More of the overall mass of the sea turtle is internal and therefore less exposed to the elements for cooling. These guys are so big that it takes longer for them to cool down, so long that they remain relatively the same temperature for long periods of time. This idea would allow them to be active during the night, and by the next morning they won't have cooled off so much that they don't really have to start over. They are effectively like an endotherm. This act of achieving homeothermy through size is referred to as gigantothermy. Now, apply this to our synapsid ancestors, who are even larger. Odds are they benefited from this thermal inertia as well. Now we all know how hard it is to change your ways. Now imagine trying to change after a hundred million years. Therapsids had become used to having a constant and high body temperature. They're used to being like an endotherm. But this became a problem as the Permian got worse and worse. As the Permian dragged on, it got hot, and with volcanic eruptions from where is now modern-day Siberia, more carbon dioxide was released into the sky. The ash clouds probably did their part by blocking out sunlight for plant life. Whatever the exact cause or causes were, the end of the Permian was hard. The hardest time for life on Earth, often referred to as the Great Dying. Here, over 95% of marine and 70% of terrestrial species died. This is the largest extinction in known history. But the rhapsids survived, importantly, the cynodonts, our ancestors. As food gets scarcer, it is hard to support those large bodies. And then, after the Permian, came the Jurassic period and the rise of the dinosaurs. The fossil record shows the decrease in the size of these mammalian ancestors, indicating that competition with dinosaurs forced them into other niches. As they lost their size, however, they started to lose their thermal inertia. 
This was a problem because their bodies had become constrained after 100 million years. So instead of undoing all the adaptations they had to being like an endotherm, the theory is that evolution led them to being endothermic. Now we can look back at the fossil record to help support this claim. One is that we look at the size trend in our mammalian ancestors. We can see their change in size, from big to then small. We can also see mammalian traits starting to pop up. Not all at once. For example, it wasn't until the very end of the Permian with the cynodonts that we see the first complete secondary palate that helps separate your nasal and oral cavities. We see a lot of these transitionary fossils, like that of Probignathus. This cynodont had both the ancestral jaw joint and the jaw joint that we have that freed up two bones to become part of the middle ear. And it is transitionary fossils like this that make it hard to define what was the first true mammal. There are two other important factors we can look at. One are the bones. Ectotherms tend to build their bone tissue slowly. This is called lamellar bone structure. This can be seen by the limited amount of haversian canals, canals in the bones for blood vessels. Endotherms tend to have non-lamellar bone structure. This has more of those canals indicative of faster pace growth, which endothermy allows. This can be found in at least two genuses of therapsids, etitanosuchids and pristerognathids. Another way to determine if endothermy evolved is to look at predator-prey ratios. Endotherms have high metabolisms, so they eat frequently, and ectotherms don't need to eat as often. For example, that pet ball python from episode 3a only eats about once a week, and sometimes even less in winter. Since ectotherms don't need to eat as often, a prey population can support a larger number of them. So when looking at the fossil record, the number of prey remains compared to the number of predator remains can also shed light on the rise of endotherms. Now keep in mind that there are other theories out there about how endothermy evolved in mammals. For example, while researching this topic, I came across the fungal argument, which states that constant warm internal temperatures are great at preventing fungal infections. I, for one, am glad of this. However, the problem I have with this particular theory is that I couldn't find an explanation as to why endothermy started to rise when it did, due to fungal avoidance. The size of Fugium hypothesis does explain. So at the end of the day, what do we know? We know that animals are either ectotherms or endotherms, and that some ectotherms can be effectively like an endotherm. One way is due to surface area to volume ratio. That the smaller your surface area to volume ratio is, the more heat you retain. This can be done by becoming larger or condensing your shape, like curling up into a ball. Our ancestors got big and got warm. Then competition muscled in and they downsized to find a new market, a new niche. When they got small, they weren't as warm, 
but after a hundred million years, they were stuck in their ways. So those that started evolving towards endothermy fit better into that 100 million year long mold, and those traits were selected for. And that before, during, and after this transition, our ancestors developed 14 traits that either took advantage of being effectively like an endotherm or supported being a true ectotherm. If you are interested in examining today's episode further, I posted a link to my sources at podcastwild.weebly.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-W-I-L-D dot W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. You can also find us on Facebook as Podcast Wild. Thanks for listening. Thanks for learning. We'll talk to you next time on Podcast Wild with Episode 4, Death of Prometheus.